Jeremiah chapter 43, it's a fairly short chapter by Jeremiah standards. In chapter 43, it begins, now it happened when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all the people, all the words of the Lord, their God, for which the Lord, their God had sent him to them. All these words that Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, you speak falsely. The Lord, our God, has not sent you to say, do not go to Egypt and dwell there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may put us to death or carry us away captive to Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Kariah, all the captains of the forces and all the people would not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan, the son of Kariah and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to dwell in the land of Judah from all nations where they had been driven men, women, children, the king's daughters And every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Hahiakim, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. So they went to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And they went as far as Tappanus. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and Tappanus, saying, Take large stones in your hand and hide them in the sight of the men of Judah, in the clay, in the brick courtyard, which is in at the entrance to Pharaoh's house in Tappanus. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will send and bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant And will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden. And he will spread his royal pavilion over them. When he comes, he shall strike the land of Egypt. And deliver to death those appointed for death. And to captivity those appointed for captivity. And to the sword those appointed for the sword. I will kindle a fire in the houses of the gods of Egypt and he shall burn them and carry them away captive. And he shall array himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd puts on his garment and he shall go out from there in peace. He shall also break the sacred pillars of Beth Shemesh that are in the land of Egypt and the houses of the gods of the Egyptians. He shall burn With fire. In the last section, that is chapter 41 and chapter 42, the survivors had asked the prophet Jeremiah to pray for them. Remember, they are the remnant and the refugees. They have survived the destruction of Judea and Jerusalem. This is the group of people who had gathered together. They had made Gedalia or the Babylonian king had made Gedalia the the temporary governor. He was assassinated. And after his assassination, 
Johanan rescued the refugees, gathered them together, began to plead with Jeremiah, we need guidance, we need instruction about which direction we should go. And so they had to make a choice whether or not they would stay in the ruined land of Judea and begin to build a new life for themselves or to seek shelter and safety in Egypt, which had not fallen to Babylon at this particular point. And the Lord told Jeremiah, tell the people, don't fear the king of Babylon. Why? Because the king of Babylon isn't in charge. God is in charge of the universe. And so, (laughs) but they're to remain in Judah and live. And if the people elected to disobey God and retire to Egypt, it would be bad for them. They would die. Tragically, the people once again do not believe Jeremiah's word from the Lord. In spite of the prophet's warning, the people will make the journey to Egypt. And whether or not they force Jeremiah and Baruch to go with them as a matter of scholastic uh, consideration. But Jeremiah does go with them. And the Lord instructs Jeremiah to bury some large rocks at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace and he's going to use this as a sort of a a sermon a living sermon to illustrate a point that God is going to fulfill his promises and that the prophecy is going to come true now the section speaks of the people's sin in verses 1 through 7 and then the prophet's sign in verses 8 through 13 and in the next chapter that's chapter 44 Jeremiah is going to deliver two sermons one is a stinging rebuke in chapter 44 verses 1 through 6 about the consequences of disobedience and a second dire warning that if the people remain in Egypt they're going to suffer war and famine until death overtakes them or they're going to return to Judah and live and then in chapter 45 the book of Jeremiah returns to a flashback to a time before the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah and it's going to talk about the deep depression experienced by Baruch the scribe and then the words of comfort that Jeremiah is going to provide Now, there are any number of reasons why we fail to obey God's warning in our lives. As a matter of fact, if you can think in your own heart of something that God has asked you to do, and then you decided for whatever reason not to do it, you probably could come up with all kinds of reasons. The Lord speaks to you. The Lord invites you to do something different. The the Lord invites you to obey him. And a sense of panic sets in or fear or doubt or pride or self-will or personal delusion. There's all kinds of reasons why we disobey God. And there are other reasons. The refugees hoped Egypt would be a place of peace. And it's very, very difficult for us to understand how desperately you would want peace when you're surrounded by people who are constantly trying to kill you. Prosperity when you've lived in adversity and deprivation. Plenty when you've had nothing and security when your life is constantly put at risk. And if we were to ask these survivors, 
Why wouldn't you obey the word of the Lord? Why wouldn't you obey after you pleaded with Jeremiah to reveal to you what God's will is? I'm going to suggest to you that they wouldn't say, well, I panicked or I was afraid or I was filled with pride or I was deluded. They would have went for peace, prosperity, plenty, security. I thought I was doing what was in my best interest or in the best interest of my family. But it wasn't true. Look at what it says in verse one. Now, it happened when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all of the people, all the words of the Lord, their God. For which the Lord their God had sent him to them all these words. Now remember, Jeremiah gave them a promise in chapter 42, verses 7 through 12. That if they'd stay in the land, God would plant them. God would build them. That they need not fear the king of Babylon. The second part of Jeremiah's message was a warning in verses 13 through 18. Egypt doesn't hold the solution to your problems. Now is not the time to run away from God. Now is the time for you to be in that place where God wants you to be so that he can fulfill the plan for your life and so that he can so so that you can go forward. And so finally, Jeremiah ended his message from from God. With something a little bit awkward. The exposure of their hearts in verses 19 through 22. They had tried to deceive Jeremiah with a promise that no matter what Jeremiah said, that they would obey God's word. But they had no intention of obeying God's word. They didn't really want his guidance. They didn't really want his advice. They really didn't want his prayers. They wanted his approval. They wanted him to say what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear, we are tired of war. We are tired of deprivation. We are tired of living an insecure life. We want to be a place, we want to go to a place where we'll be safe and where we don't have to worry about all these things anymore. And sometimes people will come to you in the hopes that you will say to them what they want to hear. Especially if they're in a difficult circumstance or especially if they're in a relationship that they have no business being in or of staying in a relationship that they're supposed to stay in. And they come to you and they say, tell me that God will bless this wicked relationship. And you need to say to them, no, God's not going to bless this wicked relationship or to stay in a particular marriage and you you go to a person and you say please give me permission to leave my husband please give me permission to leave my wife the refugees had made a vow that they were going to obey god that they were going to to do whatever god wanted them to do they weren't willing to admit that secretly they preferred worry over obedience And in verse 2, it says that Azariah, the son of Hosea, Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, you speak falsely. Why? Because Jeremiah said, stay in the land and God will bless you. If you go back to Egypt, you're going to be in big, fat, stinking trouble. They said, you speak falsely. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, do not go to Egypt to dwell there. 
By the way, the Hebrew word translated proud or in the old King James, it says insolent comes from a root Hebrew word, which means to boil or to boil over. Have you ever watched someone so angry that they flipped their lid? That's kind of the picture that comes here in the reference to the proud men. They were angry. They flipped their lid. They see Jeremiah as a spokesman of doom and failure and gloom. And the people do what people do in every generation. They accuse the prophet of speaking falsely. You ask me to pray. You ask me to get God's will and God's mind in this matter. Well, this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to stay in the place that he's planted you and he wants you to trust him. And they go, oh, no, God didn't send you. You just made that up. They're not willing to see their own dark side. They'd rather accuse God and God's word and God's prophet than allow the Bible to confront them and expose them. And sometimes we have that same challenge, don't we? We open up our Bibles and we ask the Bible to speak to us. Lord, give us instruction, give us guidance, give us direction. And then all of a sudden the Bible does exactly that. It points you away from sin and it points you to the Savior. It points you away from hell. It points you towards heaven. It points you to a place of repentance and submission and obedience to God. And you, you, you start to shake and rattle and roll. Admitting their sin would be a confession of personal weakness. And so instead they accuse Jeremiah in their proud conceit and false accusation. They say, hey, look, look at verse two. The Lord, our God, has not sent you. They still refer to the Lord as their Lord. I want you to think about what's happening here. The people are convinced. That they're right. And that Jeremiah is wrong. It becomes a type and a picture where sometimes you might be with someone and someone you might sometimes you might be that very person that the Bible begins to speak and the Bible begins to instruct you and the Bible begins to tell you what is the way to go and the direction that you need to go. And all of a sudden you begin to think, well, that can't be right. God can't be right. It can't be wrong if it feels so right. You light up my life. No, different, different song. That's a different, different message. Jeremiah is accused falsely of lying. Jeremiah is accused of being a false prophet who's brought the nation to ruin. Now, I want you to think of this through for just a moment. Jeremiah's life and ministry has been one of credibility, integrity, and fulfilled prophecy. And so when a man of God has a ministry filled with credibility and filled with integrity and filled with fulfilled prophecy. And then points you in the right direction and you say that's the wrong direction. 
This is what it says in verse 3. Look what it says. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, he set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may put us to death or carry us away captive to Babylon. Baruch, the son of Neriah, was Jeremiah's personal secretary. It was Jeremiah's job to hear from God and it was Baruch's job to record the word of God. And so what they do is they not only falsely accuse Jeremiah of lying, now they accuse him of being unduly influenced by his good friend and companion, Baruch, the son of Neriah. In other words, they're basically saying, God didn't give you that message. Why, this is a man-made message. Just like when people say, how can you trust the Bible? After all, it's just a book written by men. Well, yeah, God used human beings as instruments to record the words, but make no mistake about it. This book is a communication from God. It's a communication from heaven. The word that is given and the instructions that are given are for are for our good and for our growth and for our edification. And so think about it. The Bible's not true. The word isn't true. You've been unduly influenced by human beings. It's blame. Doug Larson said the reason people blame things on previous generations is that there's only one other choice. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, doesn't it? Remember when the Lord showed up and said, Adam, dude, what's going on? And he goes, it's the woman. And the woman goes, it's the serpent. And the serpent's going, there's nobody left to blame. And I think that that's sometimes why we blame other people. For our rebellion and our sin and our disobedience. Because the only other option is to be held accountable. It's to confess our sin. And to turn from our sin. And to repent of our sin. It says in verse 4, So Johanan, the son of Kariah, all the captains of the forces and all the people would not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. Now, there's a special insight that's given here. I want to draw your attention to the fact that Johanan, who had rescued him, all the captains of the forces, that's all the rest of them, all of the people, look what it says. They all joined together in the rebellion and the disobedience and would not obey. Look what it says. The prophecy of Jeremiah or the suggestion of Jeremiah or the good advice of Jeremiah. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the word that Jeremiah has spoken is the voice of the Lord. It's the instruction from the mind of God and the heart of God. And all the people would not obey. The whole group was caught up in the willful disobedience. But Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to dwell in the land of Judah from all of the nations where they had been driven. This is all of the people that they had gathered together after the collapse. Look what it says in verse 6. Men, women, children, the king's daughters. These are the daughters of Zedekiah. You'll remember that when Nebuchadnezzar captured him, he, he put out his eyes. And, but before he put out his eyes, he had to watch 
His sons be executed. And every person whom Nebuzaradan, that's the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the former governor who's now assassinated, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. The big raging debate among Bible teachers and Bible scholars were Jeremiah and Baruch forced to go? Or did they go according to their own free will. Andrew Blackwood in his commentary writes, we don't know. But here's what we do know from the text. Here's what we do know. That Jeremiah goes with them and as he goes with them into this place, he continues to hear from the Lord because guess what? The word of the Lord is going to show up and tap in us and continue to instruct Even in this kind of circumstance of blatant, willful disobedience. In verse 7 it says, So they went to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And that becomes a type and a picture throughout biblical history and Jewish history in, in, in particular. There's times in life when the Lord says, Abraham, I need you to stay in the land. Isaac, I need you to stay in the land. Jacob, I need you to stay in the land. Were there exceptions? Yes, there were. But typically, Egypt becomes a type and a picture of going back to the place of bondage. Going back to the place of captivity. Going back to the place of of incarceration. And so it says, so they went to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And and this becomes an important point, too, that when we make the choice to run away from God or walk away from God or disobey God, it isn't that you don't go nowhere. When you go against God, when you go against his instructions, when you go against what what he has for you, you invariably wind up going in a different direction. That is one of rebellion and disobedience. Tapinus, by the way, the Greek, Daphne, Pelutsi. There was a time way after this time that Egypt will become part of a. When Alexander's empire is divided into four, um, the Greeks will occupy this portion of of uh, of the northern part of Egypt. But this is centuries ahead. But this particular place is modern Tel Daphna, which is Daphna is from the Greek Daphne. There was a fort on the eastern branch of the Nile that commanded sort of the approach to southern Israel. If you have a map in the back of your Bible and you go to where Egypt is and you go where the Nile empties into the Mediterranean, there is a, a spot um, in modern uh, Israel that is the Negev. And as, as you go where the Gaza Strip is and you go into that little area that is the, the beginning of, of Egypt, th- it, this is a sort of a fortress place. We might think of, of this place, Toppenus, as sort of the gateway into Egypt. Warren Wearsby writes... Once again, God's people walked by sight and not by faith. And that was the big dividing line. 
It's the dividing line of every Christian in every generation. You'll walk by faith, that is in the confident promises of God, or you'll walk by sight. That means you walk in such a way that you say, here's what I see. I see that I don't have a job. I, I see that, that my life is in a shamble. I see this and I see that. And so God calls us to walk by faith. That he knows what he's doing, that his promises are true, and that he can be trusted. And like I said, we're all familiar with the story of Jacob and his children. How the children of Jacob hated Joseph. They placed him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. He rose to prominence in Egypt during a time of starvation and blight and famine. He will become the instrument to save his own family and the nation. How the children of Israel became the slaves in Egypt. How God wanted to use Moses to bring about a great deliverance. And he does, in fact, bring about a great deliverance. Now the remnant want to return to bondage and slavery. And so it is for us as Christians. When we want to turn our back on God and turn our back on the Bible and we want to walk back into the world from which we were saved from the bondage that's there. So Egypt becomes a type and a picture of the world. Those who place their confidence in this world and in this world system remain in bondage and slavery. And this is why the New Testament says don't love the world and neither the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. So what happens if we forsake the place of promise? We go back to the place of bondage. What happens to those people who turn their back on Jesus and they decide that slavery and bondage, at least it's something that they get used to. Well, what happens if we neglect or forsake God's word? That becomes part of the point. Invariably, there is a sense In which we invite judgment. And this is what we've seen throughout the book of Jeremiah. So again. Why would anyone go back to the place of bondage and slavery? Once again the text gives us the simple but compelling answer. It's found there. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. Remember what we learned about Jeremiah's ministry? Jeremiah's ministry is sort of a ministry to people who are committed to living a lifestyle of sin and rebellion. Do you think that's a kind of a frustrating ministry to have? That God has called you to work with a group of people who don't like being worked with. Working with a group of people who can take or leave the Bible, who could take or leave the promises of God, who can take or leave the instructions, who think that worship is optional and discipleship is optional and that evangelism is optional. All of these things are optional. You know, if you find time, that's great. And if you don't find time, that's great, too. So what happens? What happens? What happens to Christians When they embark on a course of rebellion and disobedience 
that might lead to deep-seated sin, well, they experience a loss of light, it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, with Jesus, and walk in darkness, we lie and we're not practicing the truth. What are some of the other symptoms of a Christian who is purposed in his or her heart to disobey the Lord? Well, not only do you wind up walking in darkness, you wind up ignoring God's Word and despising God's warnings. The symptoms include a conspicuous lack of joy according to Psalm 51 12 and John chapter 15 verse 11 Romans chapter 15 and 16 where it says that there's this conspicuous lack of joy and peace in your life there's also the loss of love in 1st John chapter 2 verse 5 there's the loss of righteousness in 1st John chapter 3 verses 4 and 10 there's a loss of fellowship that begins to take place in 1st John chapter 1 verse 3 there's a loss of confidence in 1st John chapter 3 verse 9 and eventually there might be a loss of health Your health begins to break down. You could even lose your life. But there will come a time when all people everywhere will be compelled to obey that voice. You see, right now there are people who can choose or choose otherwise. But Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 28, marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life. They that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. It says in John chapter 5 verse 28 and 29. Is God speaking? Yes. Are we listening? Sometimes. Will there come a point when all men everywhere will listen and obey the voice of God? Jesus says, yes. It says in verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and Tapanus. Now, remember, they've left the land. They're now in the gateway of Egypt. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. This is the instruction of God. Now, I'm going to ask you a question of the text. How much time has transpired between verses 7 and 8? They've rebelled, they've disobeyed, they've decided they're going to march into Egypt. They gather up their goods like the Beverly Hillbillies. They load up the truck and they move to Beverly Hills. We're not told if it's one day. We're not told if it's weeks or months or even years. We find them now at the mouth of Egypt. Jeremiah is going to use a symbolic action to predict Egypt's invasion. This is Jeremiah's, what what the Bible, what we might call his action sermon. Jeremiah has preached living sermons before. Remember, Jeremiah is the guy who smashes the pot at the potter's gate. This is the same Jeremiah who wears a yoke at an international summit conference. Jeremiah is one of those guys who loves living sermons. He takes the word of the Lord comes and it says, take large stones in your hand and hide them in the sight of the men of Judah in the clay and the brick courtyard, which is at the entrance to Pharaoh's house in Tapanus. The Lord, the prophet Jeremiah hears from the Lord to take stones in a kind of symbolic prophetic gesture. He's going to take these stones. They're going to serve as foundation stones 
for the king of Babylon. In other words, here's what he's going to say. He's, he's basically saying, I want you to take these stones. There's a pavilion that's there. I want you to chip away. I want you to take the rock. I want you to embed it in the mortar. I want you into, in a prophetic way, in a symbolic way, if you will. I want you to set the stage that you're laying a foundation that in the not too distant future, the king of Babylon is going to spread his pavilion right where we are. Josephus writes, quote, Josephus tells us that in the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, that would be 581 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar is a part of the general campaign against coal Syria and other small states. Here's what he writes, fell upon Egypt in order to overthrow it. And he slew the king who then reigned. He set up another. He took those Jews who were captives there. He led them away to Babylon. And such was the end of the nation of the Hebrews. He writes in his book Antiquities, um, book 10, 9. Verse seven. There's no confirming evidence. The records show that Pharaoh Hophra reigned from 588 to 569. A fragmentary text now in the British Museum tells that Nebuchadnezzar invaded Egypt in the 37th regnal year, 568. The devastation wasn't so complete as Jeremiah predicts, which leads me to a suspicion. That there is an element of this prophecy that is yet future. I see in the confrontation of the king of Babylon with the king of Egypt a type and a picture of a future Antichrist coming and overthrowing the kings of this world. Flinders Petrie, who excavated the ruins of Tapanus, translates that term. The brick courtyard in verse 9 as the pavement. It's the Hebrew word Malbin, saying, When I came to clear the fort at Daphna, there proved to be but one entry into Pharaoh's house, and in front of that was a wide paved area on the north of the fort. It was a place probably for the external garden, for the stacking of goods, unloading camels, and such purposes of outdoor life in Egypt. This platform was a place exactly corresponding to Jeremiah's detailed account, and the identification is certain. What is really interesting about this is archaeology continues to uncover and prove that the words of the Bible Bible are true, true, true. But it's something else as well. It's the prophecy that Jeremiah gives at this particular moment and this particular time and this particular space. Because remember what they have accused Jeremiah of, of lying and listening to human beings. But he comes to Tapanus and he speaks a word of prophecy and the, the word of prophecy is that the king of Babylon is going to come and he's going to overthrow the king of Egypt. What does this mean for you and me? It means that even when we try to run away from God, even when we think that we are safe and secure and prosperous, even when Satan himself holds out the invitation and promises that you're going to have a better life, you're going to have a better relationship, you're going to have more money, you're going to have this. If you, if you would just turn your back on God, if you'll just turn your back on, on Jesus, if you'll just go back to where you came from, I'll take you back. 
But by the way, when you run from God, are you ever going to be successful? Really? In the truest sense of the word? The Pharaoh's house in this courtyard, I think, becomes a type and a picture of the people who run back into the world. And in verse 10, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will send and bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden. And he will spread his royal pavilion over them. Verse 11, when he comes, he shall strike the land of Egypt, deliver to death those appointed for death, to captivity those appointed for captivity, to the sword those who are appointed for sword. Jeremiah spells out the choices. To those who are appointed to death, death. To those who are appointed to captivity, captivity. For those who are appointed to the sword, I think minimum it becomes a way of saying injury, the point, the prophecies of God are true. Another point, sin kills, sin enslaves, sin injures. This is why the Bible says that the the soul that sins it shall surely die. That eventually, eventually, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even next week and next month, but eventually our rebellion and our sin catches up with us. We construct idols from history and we worship mere men and women for their ability to make money or make love or make us laugh or or the idols of science and the idols of power and the idols of man-made religions. We deify human beings. We humanize God. We trivialize sin. We marginalize holiness. We cannibalize the church. And then all of a sudden, things are going really bad. In verse 12, it says, I will kindle a fire in the house of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive. And he shall array himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd puts on his garment, and he shall go out from there in peace. The picture is the king of Babylon coming. He captures Egypt. Is this exactly what happened? In part, this is exactly what happened. Is there going to come a future time when a future king will once again consolidate the world and set it on fire? When he says, I will kindle a fire in the houses of the gods of Egypt and he shall burn them and carry them away captive and he shall array himself with the land of Egypt. That means he's going to put it on display as a shepherd puts on a garment. And in in other words, he's going to not meet any resistance whatsoever. The king of Babylon's ability to take over and consume the area is going to be like a shepherd dusting off the dirt of his cloak and putting it on and he shall go from there in peace. And what about Egypt as savior? So here's the idea. Remember, the children, the refugees, the survivors have thought we are going to go to Egypt where we're safe, where we're secure, where there's prosperity, where there's plenty. We're not going to trust the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We are going to trust Egypt as our savior and we are going to trust the gods of Egypt and their ability to deliver us. God's response, 
They're not going to deliver you. And I'm going to set them on fire. Again, it reminds me in part of how easily the Antichrist will subdue the nations of the world. And here's the point. The refugees are not only fleeing from Judah. They're not only fleeing from the king of Babylon. They're running away from God. And Jeremiah is making the point that God will run after them. This is an important point. Because sometimes even when we decide that we're going to close our Bible, we're going to shut our mouth, we're going to walk away, God finds a way of opening up the Bible. God finds a way of showing up. God finds a way of speaking. Have you ever discovered that you don't necessarily have to be in church to hear from God? You can be at home. You can be driving down the road. You can look into the sky. You can look down at the dirt. All of a sudden there becomes reminders all around you of a God who is there and the God who cares and he follows you and he follows you into Egypt. Jeremiah is making the point that God's going to run after them. Now, and here's the hard part. And he's going to use the army of Babylon and the king of Babylon to find them and to discipline them. That's a hard word. That sometimes God can take the instruments of this world to find us and discipline us. Look back at verse 10. He will spread his royal pavilion over them. This is lavish language to describe a conquering God whom it's impossible to run away from. And again, the irony is the fact of how easily the refugees, as soon as they get to Egypt, they fall into the trap of going, well, we're in Egypt. When in Egypt, do as the Egyptians do. Think about what's happening. The refugees choose to ignore and disobey the God of Israel. They choose instead to embrace the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt are destined to be subjugated and taken away by the king of Babylon. Burn them and carry them away captive. Who? The gods of Egypt. He shall also break the sacred pillars of Beth Shemesh. There's two. uh, There's a Beth Shean and a Beth Shemesh. One is in the land, the other one is in the land of Egypt. This is to be differentiated from the other one. Bet Shemesh that are in the land of Egypt. So it says, this is the one that's in Egypt. And the houses of the gods of the Egyptians he shall burn with fire. Bet Shemesh was also known as Heliopolis. And for those of you who are familiar with that combination word, Helios is the sun. Polis is city. This is the city of the sun. So Bet Shemesh is the city of the sun. The Septuagint has the lines, the pillars of Heliopolis that are on or that is in on. John in 1 John chapter 5 verse 21 warns the Christians, little children, keep yourself from idols. St. Augustine said, Thus does the world forget you, its creator, and falls in love with what you have created instead of with you, unquote. 
Idolatry isn't simply bowing down to a stone statue or a man-made object. It is the wicked tendency on the part of people to trust people and possessions or power or position rather than God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, A man's God is that for which he lives, for which he is prepared to give his time, his energy, his money, that which stimulates him and rouses him and excites him and enthuses him. The way I would put it is simply, your God is that thing which preoccupies you. You wake up in the morning. You live for it throughout the day. You place your head on the pillow. It's the thing that you love. And so the question, of course, is why would anyone want to commit to gods that will in the end perish? So in the book of Hosea, chapter eight, verse four, it says they made idols for their own destruction. The key, if it's made by a man, if it's fabricated by a human being, If it can be destroyed by a human being, if it can be taken captive by a human being, it doesn't deserve to be trusted by you. An idol in the end becomes anything that serves as a substitute for God. And so, Jeremiah, right when it looked like he was going to have a ministry breakthrough... Follows these people into the land of Egypt. He's going to give a couple of more messages before we go back in time. (laughs) One of the ways to minister to survivors is to remind them that it's better to have nothing in God. It's better to have insecurity and the security that God is with you. It is better to have the promises of God than the empty promises of human beings who will in the end let you down. And so we discover something that as always we are given an invitation to hear What the Lord is saying to us to respond to his word, to submit to his instruction, to allow his grace and his mercy to overwhelm us. We're going to have communion in just a few minutes. And what I want you to do is just um, hold the elements until we all have a time, an opportunity to uh, Participate together in communion. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that sometimes it seems easy to run away from your plan, to run away from your will, to run away from what you've instructed us to do. Lord, you've told us that we are to love you and to believe that your word is true. And that we can trust your providence and we can trust your grace and we can trust your mercy. That, Lord, when we trusted Jesus as our Savior, that his life and his death and his resurrection means life for us 
and hope and a future. Lord, that when we're tempted to turn from your grace, to turn from your wisdom, to turn from your love, to turn from your admonition, your correction, your instruction, to run to a place where we think that we'll be safe, secure, provided for. That, Lord, this world really holds out empty promises and that all that it promises the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That in the end there's an animosity because the world stands in opposition to the things of God. And Lord, we begin to understand once again what fellowship is light with darkness. And Lord, we pray that our fellowship would be with you and with each other in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would you would prepare our hearts. Lord, we pray that if there has been some place, Lord, that we've allowed rebellion and disobedience to take hold, that, Lord, we would remember your promise and your love that if we confess our sin, that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that we can turn to you and that you'll fill us. And forgive us and empower us to live the way you want us to live, Lord. So prepare our hearts as we prepare for communion, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.